You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Good morning, church family. My name is Jonathan Bonija, and I am a church planter. So I serve the village and the Lord in that way. And today I'm going to be reading out of the Word of God in the book of Luke, chapter 11, 1 to 4, in Spanish. Jesús enseña sobre la oración. Un día estaba Jesús orando en cierto lugar. Cuando terminó, le dijo uno de sus discípulos, Señor, enséñanos a orar, así como Juan enseñó a sus discípulos. Él les dijo, cuando oren, digan, Padre, santificado sea tu nombre, venga tu reino. Danos cada día nuestro pan cotidiano. Perdónanos nuestros pecados, porque también nosotros perdonamos a todos los que nos ofenden. Y no nos metas en tentación. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be God. Thanks, brother. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Mason King. I'm one of the elders here. And gosh, it's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us both in here and online. Uh, for the last year, when I've been standing to preach over here, kind of side stage, uh, the Lord's put a new prayer in my heart. And uh, I remember the first day that it was, uh, it was new to me. Prayer is not new to me, but this prayer was new to me. And uh, that was a joke. You can, okay, good. All right, great. It's fine. Uh, but it was that I was praying for, for God to let me feel his love. And then I began to ask for God to let me feel his love for you. For each of you and all of you. And I ask and I pray that my tone, my face, my body language, the words preached would communicate the love of God to you. Not because of me, but God by the power of his spirit the word proclaimed, his spirit at work. This has been my prayer. And I want you to think about when you're with someone that you know loves you. Like loves you for you. Got him? How do you feel physically when you're with that person? Are you anxious, uptight, like worried about your, what you're doing and how they're gonna perceive you? Or are you relaxed, at peace, just enjoying the level of trust that's there. And we're going to get in the sermon in a minute. I, I just want to invite you to consider that you are loved by God now. And if you're in Jesus, you're unchangeably, irrevocably, unswervingly united to Jesus united to the Father by the Spirit now, which means that Jesus, by the power of his Spirit, lives in you now. And he is here now among us. You are worthy of his love because he says you're worthy and you're his child because he chose you in love. You are secure because you're his. 
All of this speaks not to your greatness, not to my greatness, but to the greatness of our Father God. And so if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, gosh, I'm so glad you're here. If this all sounds too good to be true, the invitation is for you as well to believe that God is who He says that He is. And what He says about you is true. It takes faith to believe that. It takes faith, but it gives life like you've never known. So let's look at Luke. Luke 11. We're in our series on parables, which are the primary way Jesus chose to teach about the kingdom of God. Now, we've talked about this. These parables are tricky things. They're mysteries wrapped in everyday clothes. They're uh, word puzzles with an invitation inside. And so when it comes to parables, they're tools used in time to invite you to slow down, to consider, and to rethink reality. Because we've heard the parables before, right? We've heard a lot of them, and many of us are unsuspectingly unfamiliar with the details because we've boiled them down to moral lessons that we can put at work in life with God. We've boiled the parables down, stuck them in the bookshelf of our mind, and when we get in a pinch, we pull off the parable and plug it in like a tape deck. Half of you don't know what that is. It's fine. (laughs) But since each gospel writer uses parables differently in their recounting of the story of Jesus... I want to catch you up on Luke's retelling so far. So much like we covered the Old Testament in about five minutes, I want to cover 10 chapters of Luke in about three minutes. Are you ready? Yeah? Okay, here we go. Uh, 10 chapters from a bird's eye view. So, the angel Gabriel predicts the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus. John's dad prophesies over John at his birth, and he says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's a pretty good birth announcement. And so Christ is born, and the angels appear to the shepherds to announce the good news. Christ is presented at the temple, and we're told of Simeon, a righteous man waiting for the Lord's Messiah who saw Jesus. He sees Jesus, and he takes him in his hands, and he he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon had been told he would be alive until he saw the Messiah. And now he has seen Jesus. The next thing we know, John's grown up. It's like the Disney movie where the music happens and all of a sudden 30 years passes. And he's proclaiming that the Messiah is coming and people should get baptized, live rightly and follow God's ways. And we see Jesus get baptized. He heads to the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan and undeterred by evil. Christ begins his public ministry. And then shortly after on the Sabbath, it's his turn to read the scroll in Nazareth. So he stands up and takes the scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke tells us that he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everybody in the room were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he's off. He heals broken bodies, has compassion on hurting hearts, returns lost children to desperate parents, casts out demons, and makes right what's gone wrong in the world. He restores the image of God in the people of God. And he teaches about the kingdom of God, which, it, what it, which is what it means to live as God's children, how we find the life we're looking for, made for, through a secure relationship with God. And how we reflect God's image from our hearts. It's like, it's almost as if Jesus comes to teach the melody to his song we've been trying to sing our whole lives. And if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, if our hearts are willing to receive the one God has sent, that song will change us from the inside out. Luke tells us Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people with a kid's box launch. And then his closest friends see him transfigured, standing among Moses and Elijah. They are in a cloud and hear God the Father audibly say, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Christ predicts his death while the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And then Jesus sets out toward Jerusalem, which is to turn towards his death, to make the love of God known to his children. And Christ tells the disciples that all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then right before we get to our passage for today, two sisters decide to hold a dinner party for Jesus and his friends. Now, in a culture that deeply values hospitality, Martha complains to her guests, She's taking care of everything while her sister is just sitting around and listening to Jesus. So you can imagine Martha's kind but firm tone that says, hey, do you think you could tell her to clock in? Like maybe just to dry while I wash? Now imagine the tone of Jesus in response, full of compassion, full of invitation. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. That's 10 chapters of Luke. Luke, who focuses on prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. Luke, who has shown us Jesus. And by this point, by these first 10 chapters of Luke, this is how we come to see Jesus. The one who reveals the Father the Lord's Messiah, the chosen one, Israel's consolation, who takes a widow's grief and returns a resurrected son, who gives a man back his legs and restores others' sanity. This Jesus who invites the busy and anxious to sing a different tune, to choose a better portion. Now, Jonathan read the Lord's Prayer, which opens chapter 11, and disciples come to Christ and somewhat equating what Jesus is doing to what John did. They say, Hey, Lord, will you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples? Now, Christ responds with the Lord's Prayer, albeit it's a a little bit shorter than Matthew's version, if you notice. It's a little bit more truncated. 
I'm aware this prayer is not a parable, all right? But it is the foundational text for what comes next. You with me? I'm assuming we've heard the Lord's Prayer as much, if not more, than parables, so we are just as liable to forget that we're reading about the time of the New Testament. And when we're talking about history, you and I need to realize that it's a foreign place. Like, they just do things differently there. Like, when you watch a show on Netflix about history and a phone appears and they text message, that's not history, friends, not like in the 1500s. We are prone to bias, self-protection, dissonance, or difficulty with what Christ teaches because we have been shaped by our culture, our experiences, and our learned ways of being in the world. And so we can read what we want into what Jesus says. And while the Bible is clear and authoritative, the assumptions, the worldview, the values of the time of the Bible are fundamentally different than the era of Facebook and Fox News. We can even read outside of Christ's word as we try to make sense of them in the moment because you and I are tempted to soften the edges instead of sharpen our ears. The invitation of Christ's teaching is to see the Father rightly, to receive Him honestly and depend upon Him fully in the Son by the Spirit. Let's look at verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we, forgive, or we, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And I don't know if you do this. When I study, I, I paraphrase things for myself to try and make it make sense. Like I'll take it, stay as true to the heart of it as I can and kind of twist it to see, like turn it a little bit, make it make sense. Now I'm willing to share that with you if you and I have an agreement. You and I both know that's my paraphrase and not Scripture. Deal? Okay, here's how I kind of paraphrased this as I was working through. Father, your name be holy. Bring your way of life here now. Please provide what I need because I can't do it myself. Please forgive me where I've sinned against you. Absorb the offense and love me still. Help me to forgive others who sinned against me, even though it feels like a death. Help me absorb the offense and love them still. This life is hard. Please keep me from temptation to try and find life outside of your name and your way. Now, the disciples are taught to pray to the Father for daily bread. And you know what Jesus does? He turns around and teaches them a parable about someone who realizes he's out of daily bread and needs to go find some. Did you ever pick up on that? He's like, teach me to pray. He's like, give me daily bread. He's like, let me tell you a story about a guy who didn't have any bread. Look at verse five. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And who's got this friend? He's gonna answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not, up, not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, since this past is a foreign place, I, I want to give you some color for your imagination, all right? This is predominantly an honor-shame culture. It's their way of being, which is well known to those from the Far East, 
India are the southern United States. Amen? <laughs> All right. So Jason Georges talks about this in his book, 3D Gospel. He says, these cultures have a strong group orientation. Honor is a person's social worth. It's one's value in the eyes of the community. Honor brings harmony to the community and is intensely relational. Members of honor-shame cultures are expected to maintain the social status of the group, even at the expense of their personal desires. From a young age, these cultures teach that any person can bring great shame upon their family, village, or nation. Now, it's different than a guilt-innocence culture. A guilt-innocence culture forms law-abiding, moral, individualistic people who think that we right wrongs through justice. You think about the way that we talk about how people pay back their debt to society by being incarcerated. That's a guilt-innocence culture. And then also, the houses in the New Testament, like just so you get this in your mind, the houses that we're talking about here are not like the ones you see being built on 407. All right? Like the houses in the time of the New Testament are one-room houses. Living room by day, single bedroom by night. Everybody grab your mat, candles out. Okay? That's the house. And no electricity means bedtime was a lot earlier. Like some of you, Nonetheless, if we're just honest, you've got an iPad on until way too late. So you think, hey, midnight's fine. I'm up. I'm watching a show. I need you to understand that wasn't them. They went to bed at like 8 p.m. And so this is the equivalent of getting a 2 a.m. knock at the door from somebody you gave your phone, phone number to at a retreat in college. And you're like, oh, oh hey, yeah, don't remind me. Oh, you want a place to stay? Oh, okay. And so with all of that, our native reading of the parable needs to conform to the text. So unexpected company shows up at the house. They need a place to stay for the night, and your whole family gets woken up, right? It's already aces. And you realize that you're out of bread to offer your hungry guest. And so since bread is baked every day in a communal oven in the middle of the village, you know who baked last, right? It's two doors down. They've got bread. Now, I'll tell you, it's late, but waking up your neighbor is less shameful than letting your guests go hungry. So you go out in the dark. And you know everybody's asleep, because why? Because you are asleep. It's 2 a.m. It's midnight. It's late. It's the middle of the night. And you can't text him, so you call out loud enough to wake him, but maybe not loud enough to wake everybody, right? I want you to think about getting woken up out of a dead sleep. Ever happened to you? Ever been like startled into a conversation from a dead sleep? Uh, I, have, I have sleep apnea. This is, I'm giving it to you so I'm not breaking HIPAA. It's my own stuff. Um, <laughs> I have sleep apnea, which means that I sleep with a CPAP mask at night. Um, and it helps me. I'm thankful for it because it forces air into my lungs so my heart doesn't stop beating. Science is great. And um, my son is an early riser. I'm an early riser. He's like early riser. And he knows that if he, he's watched me when he comes to me in the middle of the night and he wants to get my attention or wake me up, he's watched that I have to actually like turn off the machine because I can't talk with air going in. It's hard to do both. So I have to turn off the machine and take off the mask. 
So Shepard, bless him, um, noticed the pattern and thought, well, I'm going to help you out by just taking care of some stuff. <laughs> you ever been woken up out of a dead sleep where your air supply cuts off and then there's a person standing right next to you calling your name? Like, how do you think you respond when you're groggy? Like, I'm trying. He's just trying to help. But you know that when you wake up and are thrown into conversation, often we don't respond well. Right? So, um, what does his friend say? He says, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So the question from Jesus is, who's, who has a friend that will respond like this? Who's got a friend that's going to respond like this? In an honor-shame culture, the assumed response is, no one's going to respond like this. That's shameful. You would not do that. But put yourself in the scene. You have a decision. You can save face with this friend, or you can head home empty-handed in shame. And so you swallow your pride and you ask again, please help me. You're my last resort. And I got to tell you, I think that's a pretty vulnerable moment with someone that you're going to see in the daylight tomorrow. And there's silence. And you hear the bolt, big wooden bolt, slide through the iron rings that secure the door to the home. And then three loaves of bread appear. You can hear people stirring inside. and You know what you've asked, but you need the bread. And Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, this parable is often taught about uh, a lesson about persisting in prayer. You ever heard that? You've got to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's a well-meaning conflation with actually a different parable. Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. That's why you've got to study them in context. Now, this is the lesson. Because if you think praying is to bother God into submission, to annoy Him into acquiescing, or to wear Him down to willingness, we all prove that we are unsuspectingly unfamiliar with this teaching of Christ and the character of the Father. And so where the parable of the sower was dependent on the willingness of the hearer to receive and respond to the kingdom of God, the friend at midnight is an invitation to live out the Lord's prayer by doing away with distrust, independence, self-sufficiency, and scarcity. You see, this is a lesser to greater parable. If your friend will give you what you need in that same earnest request, how much more will God the Father Hear and respond to his children. I mean, Christ says so in verse 11. Look, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, who are not God, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want you to picture it. There's a group of people standing around, formed by an honor-shame culture. And Christ says, all you dads, if your boy asks for a fish, who's going to give him a snake? 
Any takers? No one. Who's going to dishonor themselves in heart and deed towards their son? How about if he asks for an egg? Who's going to give him a scorpion? I mean, who does that? No one. But if that's the case, friend, I got to ask you this. If that's the case, why do you and I treat God our Father like He's waiting to answer His children with snakes and scorpions? The whole parable is to get to this point, that life is found in the kingdom of God, which belongs to the children of God. Christ has come to show us the heart of the Father towards His children, and it is for us to respond in faith, to believe the one He has sent and believe the Father is as good as He says that He is because He's given us the Son, Spirit. We need His help. Amen. And so I'll tell you this, I, uh, I can read about the Father. I can read about His sovereignty, His power, His freedom of choice, and at times I, I can get suspicious because in my experience, absolute power corrupts Absolutely. Something in me and us believes the lie of Satan from the garden that God's holding out on me, holding out on us. And I better guard myself to not be hurt again because I've trusted too freely and been hurt too deeply before. And so others of us have taken all the harsh tones, disappointment, angry faces, and incomplete versions of love in our lives. And instead of going from lesser to greater... We have made our experiences greater and God's own self-revelation the lesser. And so we deny the reality of the very one who gave and sustains the worth we are meant to live from, the love we are created to live from, which is the root at the root of everything we long for. And throughout life, we entrust ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires to other fallen human beings who are largely unable to rightly handle their own emotions, let alone ours. We are loved, let down, cared for, hurt, abused, protected, disappointed, or nourished in these relationships. And we take the bad experiences from the bunch and project them onto God. We expect God to handle us as poorly as others have, with silence, disappointment, Shame, explosive anger, or trying to fix things with band-aids when you and I have gaping wounds. Our fundamental human relationships shape how we think of God the Father. And the invitation of Christ is to have our fundamental relationship with our Creator, our Father, repaired and renewed. He takes us, he takes us from insecurity, instability, self-doubt, and self-loathing and puts our heart at rest yes. in the presence of the one who loves us perfectly. Yes. He teaches us the song of our hearts and offers us the good portion that cannot be taken away, which means that you and I need to learn how to pray all the more. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, Say, Father. I know there's more to the prayer, and that's fine, because we'll get there. But that first word takes faith to pray with confidence. That first word holds endless connotations for a room this size. You might feel love 
And you might feel shame. You might feel the gap of what wasn't given to you and the pain of longing. Or you feel blessing. To pray to God as Father takes faith. In his work, God, Freedom, and Human Dignity, Ron Highfield writes this. Human beings as images of God are defined by the overflowing other-directed nature of their being. We cannot become our true selves except by loving God with our whole heart and loving others. God loved us before we existed. We were dear to God when we could only envy God. And when we come to know through the Spirit how much God loves, we are set free to love God in return. And God's love then flows from us to others. Hence, our first genuinely free act is accepting God's love for us. In accepting ourselves as a divine gift, we recognize and embrace the deepest truth about ourselves. We realize that being loved by God defines us as persons. This relation, it now becomes clear, is an inherent characteristic of our identity without which we would not exist as persons. Love gives itself freely. We cannot give ourselves in this way, however, until we have an authentic self to give and the freedom to let it go. Because of God's unconditional love for us, however, we can overflow in love following the divine pattern because God's love frees us to love in freedom. We no longer need to understand ourselves as an empty space we are desperate to fill. The one and only thing we need is supplied in superabundance the love and fellowship of God. Highfield goes on to say by resting in God, we can accept ourselves by accepting God's acceptance of us. That is, we relate to ourselves indirectly by relating to God, who relates to us in love. I tell you, friend, there's no snakes and scorpions here. Christ has made the Father known, and to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. It's John 1. 1 John 3 says, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. We lit, if, I'll tell you this, in our human fathers, our, if human fathers, I as one feel this strongly, if we try our best and fail, but we know how to give good gifts, how much more will our creator, our maker, our heavenly father hear the cries of his children and give the Holy Spirit when we ask? How much more? You and I live in union with Christ by the spirit in us. He's the good deposit of our salvation. He's God's seal of love in our lives that we are his and he is ours. How much more will God hear his children when they pray for his presence to live life as it's intended to be? Each morning on the way to school, our uh, kids, our children, recite a litany of affirmations. And uh, they're truths that we want to sow down deep into their hearts. So if you rode to school with us, part of what you'd hear is this call and response between me and our kids. And part of what it is is this. 
I am a child of God. I am loved by God. My mommy and daddy love me. My mommy and daddy are proud of me. I am worthy of dignity, kindness, and respect. And I will show dignity, kindness, and respect. We do this because believing that God is who he says that he is can be one of the most difficult things of our lives. From the first time we can put thoughts together to the time we give back our breath. Believing that he simply loves us because he does goes against all our fear, our worries, and our shame. Like for you to not just know it in your mind, but feel it with your whole person that God loves you because he does. It goes against all of your fear, your worries, and your shame. Henry Nouwen writes this. He says, it is the life of the beloved lived in a world constantly trying to convince us that the burden is on us to prove that we are worthy of being loved. It is the life of the beloved lived in a world constantly trying to convince us that the burden is on us to prove that we are worthy of being loved. He goes on, he says this. You have to keep unmasking the world about you for what it is. Manipulative, controlling, power-hungry, and in the long run, destructive. The world tells you many lies about who you are, and you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am a chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all of eternity, and held safe in an everlasting embrace. I'll tell you, our God is better than the friend at midnight. He's our good Father who's worthy of our trust, of our love, and our lives because He will not put us to shame. He won't do it. Our sin and our shame are dealt with through Christ. And our present and our future are secure, not in our efforts to keep God close by doing lots of religious hobbies, not in good behavior. They're secure because he loves us like he loves himself because he sent us Jesus. He sent us Jesus to repair and renew our relationship with him that we might be in living dependence upon our Father who gives himself to us. And so if you're here today and you're not, like you're not a Christian and you say, I don't know Jesus. I've got a lot of doubts, a lot of frustrations and struggles struggle with bitterness against what I think God to be. I need to tell you that your sin and your shame can be dealt with by a father who can be trusted. And you can believe in the one he sent, Christ the Son. You can come to him and be born again, forever known, not by what you've done or what's been done to you, but by the one who loves you as his own child. So confident in him and not ourselves. Confident in him and not ourselves. We might then pray something like this.
Father, your name be holy. Bring your way of life here now. Please provide what I need because I can't do it myself. Please forgive me where I've sinned against you. Absorb the offense and love me still, O God. Help me to forgive others who've sinned against me, even though it feels like a death. Help me absorb the offense and love them still. This life is hard. Please keep me from the temptation to try and find life outside of your name and your way. Amen.